lytter til en Heartland podcast. Foran et live publikum under Heartland 2018 mødtes en af verdens mest citerede forskere, danske Karsten Rabeck, biodiversitetsforsker Kathy Willis, til en samtale om de udfordringer, vi står overfor i fremtiden, når man ser på, hvordan vi er ved at ændre hele klodens økosystem. Hvad er det for nogle naturressourcer, som vi lige nu tager for givet, men som måske inden for kort tid kommer til at mangle? Hvad kan vi gøre ved det, og hvad sker der, hvis vi ikke gør noget? Samtalen var en del af Hartlands Future Talks-program, der er skabt for at invitere videnskabsfolk ind i centrum af den offentlige samtale og inspirere os alle sammen til at interessere os for fremtiden. Future Talks er støttet af Lundbækfonden. God fornøjelse. Thank you very much. I'm Jens de Gette, the journalist who will moderate this session, and I can always already promise you that uh, your understanding of life and biodiversity will change radically during the next hour if you stay here. I would also say that uh, we have two of uh, the most influential researchers within this field in the world present here, and uh, just speaking to them outside uh, made me Uh, completely high before we can, came in here. So it's, it's a really, really interesting topic and really, really interesting people. I will start uh, asking you, Cassie, so why is biodiversity important? Well, it's an interesting, I mean, so in 2010, it was the International Year of Biodiversity, and I just want to start with a story, actually. So International Year of Biodiversity, and the BBC thought, great, will interview people in the UK and ask them what they think the term biodiversity means. And 80% of the interviewees thought it was a washing powder. And to me, that's the first part of... So biodiversity, of course, is the diversity of all biological organisms on life, on Earth, from genes through to populations, communities. But I think... We, I, I realized at that point there was going to be, need to be a really big shift in understanding of biodiversity. Why is it important, though? And I, I'm also based at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew, so I'm primarily a plant scientist. So Carsten and I will, will talk plants and animals this evening. Um, why is it important? Well, just breathe in. The, that air you are breathing has been regulated by plants. Look at what you're wearing. Everything you're wearing has come from a plant, or almost all. I can see some plastic and some rubber. Oh, rubber from a plant. Think about what you've eaten today. Think about your clean water that we've all got in our water bottles. All of that has been regulated in some way or produced in some way by biodiversity. That's why it's important. It underpins all life on Earth. And you, Katie, you are more in the plant world yep. where you are working with plants, but Carsten, you are in the animal world. Why are the animals important for us? The other things that uh, governs most of life on Earth is animals, so plants and animals goes together. Uh, I'm an ornithologist, uh, but I won't talk a lot about how important birds are because they're not that important. What is basically together with, uh, with uh, plants ruling the world is bugs. Uh, tiny organisms, especially uh, in soil. So a lot of the regulating mechanisms that uh, enable us to, to, to plant and have successful growth, uh, to have water regulations, 
uh, is governed by communities and assemblages of tiny insects and bugs. They compromise about 80 to 90 percent of all life on Earth, and they are enormously important for our function of, of, of the life-supporting system that Earth is for humans. But again, I mean, when we talk about biodiversity, why is it important for us that uh, there might be uh, less species of spiders in Borneo? Uh, I mean, it doesn't seem to bother us very much because we don't even know which spiders there are. Well, what we do know is that if we go out in different uh, types of ecosystems, uh, they function, they do things. Uh, they uh, produce, for example, uh, the cleaning up uh, uh, water. They are circulating nutrients. Uh, they're doing that as an ecosystem, but the components of the ecosystems are the species in them in interaction with abiotic uh, factors uh, like, uh, like weather and climate. Uh, so it's a community of it. Uh, I was once asked by the Dutch EU commissioner that understood that biodiversity was important for all of these things, and he basically said, I understand that, uh, but uh, if we look at pollinations that is uh, done by, by insects, uh, and especially uh, bees and bumblebees, he said, we have uh, 10 bumblebees in Holland, uh, do we need them all, and which one can we lose? And my answer was, we don't know. Yeah. But we know if we start losing them, that it will change the system, and that's the problem. This is why we care about biodiversity as a whole. So, so what does it mean for also the ecological system resilience? Uh, how much uh, does the biodiversity mean for the stability of ecological systems? So, this is, so we know that on Earth we have... Um, impacted and changed about 50% of, of the ecosystems. Uh, some of those changes has been major, some of them has been mi minor. Um, but what we, uh, what we don't know is exactly how ecosystem works. So we can go out and study how our uh, natural system works, and we can also study that when we start tempering around with it and changing it, that they change. So uh, when we talk about the services or goods that, that the ecosystem provides, then there's different arguments. Uh, there is research that indicates that natural systems are more resilient to changes. Mm. There are research that indicates that when you have a catastrophe, uh, they bounce back quicker. Uh, there's also research that indicates that they what they produce are more predictable. And if we're looking at the services being bouncing back, being resilient, and being more predictable is a really good thing for humans also. Hmm. But I also wonder, um, we, we already announced that with this uh, presentation here that there is a huge problem of mass extinction. Hmm. How bad is it? Uh, how, how bad is this mass extinction? How much effect does it have and how fast is it going? Well, if you look at the mass extinctions in the fossil records, you can see that we're, 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 the amount of change that we're seeing is actually much higher than we've seen in previous intervals. So that is very, very serious. And it's going at a much, much faster rate as far as we can tell as well. So therefore, the whole thing is going much more quickly and we're losing more species. Um, but there is, there is a, a sort of a chink of good news in there, I think, for plants. I'm going to keep... Some, going for plants here. So if you look at the fossil record, 
In fact, what you find is you never see mass extinction in plants. You see the mass extinctions that we all know of dinosaurs and all the, all the large, the, you know, the huge changes, but you don't see it in plants. So why is that? Well, I always give this example. If you go into a, if you go into a zoo and you hammer all the animals on the head, you won't be very popular, but you also won't have a zoo left. If you go into a botanic garden and cut all those plants down or burn them, in 10 years' time, those plants will be back because plants have an incredibly resilient, me resilient mechanisms. So they have seeds that can be in the soil seed bank. They can sprout out from roots. They can change from being a sexual to an asexual reproduction mode. And therefore, they have, through time, been more resilient. And I hope, going forward, that we won't see such a huge impact on the plant record than we do on the animals. Mm. But, but, Carsten, researchers are talking about a, a new global catastrophe at the scale as last time the dinosaurs uh, mm. were e extinct. And uh, why don't we see this? Uh, what are the signs? So, you know, to put it in perspective, uh, the Earth is a billion, year, billion of years old. Uh, we've had five period of, uh, of mass extinctions, and mass extinction is basically losing uh, between 50 and 90 percent of the animals. Uh, so we have seen that five times before. They've been caused by climate change and other things. The last one was 65 million years ago, where an asteroid uh, hit the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, and we also had uh, eruption of uh, under undersea uh, volcanoes that basically uh, caused all the dinosaurs to ex go extinct. Actually, they didn't go all of them. The small <laughs> one survived. They're here around today and is flying around. They are birds. Uh, but basically, everything that was larger than a bread basket of animals disappeared in the, in the air pollution. Uh, that was, happened 65 million years ago. When we talk about the sixth period of mass extinction, that is the period we're living in today. That is because uh, when we're looking at animals, especially vertebrates, birds and mammals, we can see that we start losing them at a rate that is 1,000 to 10,000 larger than the background rate. And the background rate for these animals are around one to two species per million year. Mm. So it's happened about 1,000 to 10,000 faster today. And about if you look at, at the Earth and we classify species, uh, for those species we have information about, uh, of the animals, about 20% of all organisms on Earth is classified as threatened. So if we continue the route we're going, they are in risk of going extinct. Yeah. And this is why we talk about a mass extinction and a, a biodiversity crisis. And what is really unique about it is that it's caused by another species, yeah. and that's us. And that's very different to previous only, times Only one well. species. But, but again, don't we have evolution? Don't we have new species coming up? Well, we do, yes. Uh, so on average, uh, certainly in plants, we identify around 2,000 new species a year. So there's a huge amount of diversity out there we still don't know about. And there are, that we are seeing evolutionary change occurring um, in, in, the, in, the, in the, the current uh, plant kingdom. Yeah. But evolution takes time. It takes a lot of time. And it takes lots of time. So basically, uh, with the, the natural background rate of one to two species mm. per million, uh, we have a buildup of, of diversity on Earth. But this rate with about 1,000 to 10,000 is so quick mm. 
that if you are just predicting it into the future, we stand to lose maybe 10, 20%, 30% within 50 to 100, to 100 years. I don't below, believe those figures. I actually think they're too hard mm. because uh, even, even animals are damn hard to kill. Uh, so <laughs> we often have a lot of small population that is hanging on, yeah. but what we can see is that we, we are losing life. So if we take birds, which is my favorite group, uh, we have 10,000 species of birds, and then we have some birds like chicken, and Turkey that we, uh, we are, uh, are producing. So today, the, the biomass of the number of individuals is 70% of birds we, we breed and butcher, whereas the rest is shrinked into 30%. Yeah. If we go into animals, uh, cow productions and pigs and all that, they now constitute 80%. Yeah. So it's a very few species that constitute the most thing. And this is why we we're losing Diversity, and this is the biodiversity loss yeah. we're talking about. So it's not just the number of species, it's basically the loss of the variation of life yeah. and the amount of life. Yeah. And, and that, will, that will affect uh, us humans before we know it. Uh, this, is, uh, this is where the crisis come in, mm. and this is again where we in research are looking a lot at what is the consequences of this. And if we... Uh, if we um, some of the things that, that Kathy started by saying and some of the add-ons with the box and the ecosystem functions, they do provide airs and clean water and nutrient circulations. And economists have tried to make some estimates uh, of what that is worth. Uh, and the estimate is staggering. Uh, they're very uncertain, but the estimate is that up to 50% of the uh, global gross national product that humans are consuming are coming from nature. Uh, so if we are losing that function, that could be important for, for humans. No, but I'm, I'm also... Uh, sorry, I have to use my mic microphone <laughs> now. No, I'm, I'm just uh, wondering, uh, what does it mean in, in, uh, in this country, in, in Denmark? Because we are not used to talk about biodiversity as a, as a problem. So I know that, that um, you know, most Danes think Denmark is great. We are very, very tiny. I sometimes uh, say that when I'm getting asked what does it mean for Danes, uh, I would say that we could uh, path uh, Denmark completely and turn it into a parking lot, and it probably wouldn't change the earth, uh, but I wouldn't like to live here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, what, 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 what do the Brits say to the same well, thing? Well, yes, it's quite interesting. If you flooded the whole of the UK, you'd lose three endemic plant species. But it's much more than that. It's, it's also the cultural services. It's, the, it's, the, it's all the well-being that you get from being surrounded by biodiversity. Biodiversity, whatever it is, is important everywhere. I think the, the, the humans have such a close relationship to their environment. Mm. And we sometimes lose sight of that at our peril, I would say. Mm. But, but I would, I was just curious about um, if we are taking it uh, serious enough. What could we do in order to change uh, this uh, mass extinction? Do you want to do that? Do you want to? I mean, the, the, the threat against biodiversity is uh, an, is uh, the loss of, of places to live. If uh, if 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 a species have no place to live, uh, it is in trouble. So we are losing a lot of, of wild nature and wild habitat. This is why one of the major instruments is to, to manage nature. 
Uh, so we have national park, those are protections, but most of them is going into that we need to manage it so we're not losing it. This is also what we're debating in Denmark with uh, untouched forest. Uh, so Denmark, for example, in, in Europe, we have uh, a scheme called the, uh, the uh, Area 2000, uh, and, um, and this, it's all over the news today that uh, we are uh, planning on reducing that in Denmark right now. Uh, so at, in Europe, we have 18% is set aside that we need to take uh, care of nature in those areas. Denmark is uh, just below Britain at the very, very bottom in Europe at about 8%. And right now in Denmark, we're discussing about how about we make some less areas for nature. Mm. Uh, that's not the way, way forward. So there's two other ways. So the, there's the areas for nature, and they can be in Denmark, they can be in the UK, and, and most countries have signed up to 15%. So Denmark and the UK are way down. But another way is et situ conservation, which means effectively you are taking those things that are really important and conserving them elsewhere and then able to put them back once the situation is, is better or the, the drivers that are causing the change have occurred. So let me give you an example. And that is a seed bank. I don't know how many of you have heard about the Svalbard seed bank where basically our crops are all stored in, the, in a huge... Um, a huge vault in Svalbard and the, these are basically if the crops get diseased our present day we have a backup plan now in Kew in the UK we have the Millennium Seed Bank we have 38,000 species and 2 billion seeds stored in a vault and the aim there is to have 50% of the world's plants stored as seeds now it's a living seed bank so those seeds, we have to keep, every five years, we have to keep regerminating them. It's a huge, huge task. But those seeds are our future. If we have, even if we have a nuclear war, it means we do have that, th those genes to replant, to put back out into the world. And most recently, one way we've used those seeds is with the terrible hurricanes that happened in the Dominican Republic. We're now going out there and helping them to restore their plants from the seeds in the seed bank. And I think so that's another way of conserving, which I think is a, it's, it's a way that everybody can join in with. You can sponsor seeds. You can start to understand that there are ways around the, I mean, mass extinction, the thought of it is so terrifying that we have to be working really hard to find ways to deal with this. And, and this, is, this is where I envy botanists, because they can do this. If you look at uh, animals, uh, this is actually my very first scientific paper ever was a global analysis of how do captive breeding programs do for animals. Yeah. Uh, and they have a 99.9% .9 failure rate. This is breeding in zoos, and, is it? And yes. Yeah. And, and they, they're really, really terrible at it. So we can't do what botanist does. So we are, we are stuck with problems, and we are especially stuck with problems for, for large animals, but also for a lot of the bugs. Because, and one of the reasons for that might be because we simply do not uh, know how they, they, uh, what they depend upon, and we can't breed them successfully. We can't do it in zoos and other places. As soon as we release them out, they tend to die. They don't function. They don't get into the systems. Uh, there's a much more higher success rate for that in, in, in plants. The other reason why I envy uh, uh, a botanist 
especially I'm an ornithologist. I have to get up four o'clock in the morning when I work with birds. <laughs> the botanists sleep long in the camps and go out, and they, the plants are still there. But the problem with being a botanist is that people are not so interested in plants because they don't have big eyes, they don't have beautiful feathers. Yeah. <laughs> and a, a really old family friend of mine, she's 80, 88, and she said she only became interested in plants when she, when she retired because she suddenly realized if you looked at a plant, it didn't run away from you. <laughs> and immediately I thought, oh, okay, I understand now. <laughs> and it's trying to get people to understand, you know, even these, these plants that are very unattractive, small, weedy plants, play an incredibly important role in all, all life on Earth. But, but, but Katia, I'm thinking about, it's also a real problem if you have only very spe few species in, in the plant world. For example, this, this picture yeah. is, a, is, a, is, a, is a desert seed, yes. uh, yeah. from, from yeah. a plant point yeah. of view. But also, um, if you only have one type yeah. of a species, then you can easily get yeah. uh, infections or diseases. So we eat, 80% of our food comes from 10 crops. And our coffee comes from two crops, coffee arabica and coffee, uh, coffee robusta. And so when you go to Starbucks, or I don't know what, what the, do you have Starbucks in Denmark? Lots yes, of them yes. know that, the world has Starbucks. When you go there and they say you're having Guatemalan coffee, you're still having the same species, it's just been grown in Guatemala. And the problem with that, of course, is one disease, or one or two diseases, can wipe the whole crop out. And you don't have to go far back in history, certainly in the UK, to think about the Irish potato famine. It was a result because total reliance on these very, very narrow selection of crops. And so this is why biodiversity is also really important, because what we need to be looking for are the relatives of those crops, so the crop wild relatives, and make sure that we conserve those because they contain the resilient genes that you can then breed back into your crops. But we were talking about this earlier, the problem with crop wild relatives or, yeah, is that they, they haven't been bred for the big juicy fruit. And if you look at the crop wild relative of the banana, for example, the bananas are this big and they have a black seed in them like this. And it, it's such a tough seed that if you bite into it, it will break your tooth. So, of course, people are not, you know, you see that and you think, well, that's no good. <laughs> I'll go for the nice one. And the, the problem with the, the, this it underpins the big problem that you don't tend to, we don't tend to want to conserve things that are not very attractive, they don't taste very nice, they don't have big blossomy flowers. And yet those are the things we should really, really be focusing on to stop the problem that will happen with this when you get one disease wiping out the whole lot because that threat to global food security is very, very real. And you only have to look at the, the way that pathogens are spreading across from the south to the north right now, both in animals and plants, to realize this is a very, very serious problem. So, no, I, 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 I can also say that uh, as a special bonus uh, to this debate, we have the music added to it, so yeah. we can li both listen and, and, and have the music. Yeah. But, but on, on the coffee things, because I think that's a good example. I, I, you know, Danes drinks a lot of coffee, so we're interested in coffee. But also shows that, uh, in addition to what Kathy just illustrated, why biodiversity is important. So if you uh, uh, coffee uh, do not need to be pollinated. 
but if they are pollinated, they have a 10% larger yield. So we actually get a 10% larger yield if they are pollinated. But we also know, so what a lot of uh, coffee planters have done is that they're putting out honeybees and they're pollinated. But the problem with the monocultures of honeybees is that they too are subject for, for diseases and, yeah. and, 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 uh, and pathogens. But what we also have learned is that if there are more than one uh, pollinators, if there's 10 different pollinators, which could be wild bees, yeah. the yield goes up to 20%. And if you start calculating the value of this on Earth, then these wild bugs, these wild bees, are enormously important. And this is why a lot of coffee plantation around the world is actually starting to be interested in biodiversity around it, because it makes good sense. Yeah. But, uh, yeah but so another, there's another example of that with the coffee, actually, which just came out recently, where when you think about it, the coffee plants need to have shade. And so what the planters have been doing is using a, an exotic plant as shade. But when they compared the exotic plant to the native biodiversity, what they found was that the native biodiversity had less impact on the coffee. So these exotic plants used more water, more soil, and were basically starving the coffee plants of the nutrients. So again, it's the, it's the local biodiversity that really does know best in those situations. Mm. But, but I'm just wondering, uh, how bad is the situation with the bees? How, how much is the numbers going down, and, and how many bees are we losing? I don't know exact numbers. They are, they are uh, declining. Uh, if we start by saying how important are they, they about uh, 7 to 9 percent of our agricultural production depends on pollination. And if you start doing the figures of this, this is billions and billions and billions mm -hmm. of dollars. We have tried to replace it by honeybees, but we have had a collapse in honeybees for different reasons. There's the diseases, but we also have used egg, uh, uh, pesticides, and they're going into to the honeybees. The other problems with the honeybees is that they are in competition with the, uh, with the uh, local bees, the nat natural bees. So this is a big, big issue right now. Are there bees enough in this world to pollinate Agriculture? Yes, I think so. So we're not there mm. where things are starting to collapse. But it's a very, very dangerous system to build up a very simplified monoculture with, uh, with uh, a, a, an agriculture that needs pollination and then have one species that pollinates. That's a, that's a high risk to take. So if you're an economist and you start calculating, is that risk worth taking? Yeah. Then it's not. And then it's very cheap to remove that risk by having diversity out there. And, and in South America, it's not bees, but uh, birds. It is mostly bees. Is it still those yeah. bees, bees and birds, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I heard also that, that uh, the Danes are, are not uh, that good at coping with uh, the international rules and regulation on biodiversity. We are actually, in order to uh, live up to the, to the rules, uh, really trying to, uh, to cut the corners. On, on a global scale, to deal with these issues, uh, we have agreed, uh, 126 countries has agreed to uh, establish nature in 70% of the terrestrial uh, world and 70% and in the marine world. Um, Denmark is very, very low on this. Uh, and I don't know if this is a reason, but if we look at the reporting in of protected areas uh, from Denmark to the United Nations, uh, we have uh, reported in 
all the, uh, the sanctuaries and all the uh, preservation of uh, graveyards and churches. Uh, they make very little sense for this, and I don't know if we're dressing up our figures on purpose or whether a poor guy mistook uh, these things, but this is what we're doing right now. And as I said before, the, uh, the, uh, the set-aside areas in the European context, we are lowest in Europe, and we're now talking about taking more out. So we're not you know, really doing what it needs to take in order to have a, a, um, a diverse uh, and secure uh, uh, nature in Denmark. There's another angle to, uh, to, uh, to why we need in Denmark to take care of this, because we talk about the importance at the global scale. I returned from a COP meeting in Colombia debating this, and there's one measure from all the other countries, especially third world countries that has a lot of biodiversity. We're putting a lot of pressure on them to preserve biodiversity there, but they're basically saying, we are willing to do that if you also take care of nature back home. So they're not willing to take on all the burden of doing, they want you know, the Western world and the rich world also to step up and show the way forward. And this is about stewardship for biodiversity. So what about UK? Are you one of the leading countries in the world or are you also trying to, uh, to get over it as, as cheap as possible? I, I mean, we, we lead on certain parts and, and we're very good at telling other people what to do. But we're not very good at doing it ourselves, I think would be the honest answer for the UK. Um, so we, we do lead on a number of the things like the IUCN red listing and all these other things where we, you know, we're, we're out there telling people what they should do with their protected areas. But I think there's, uh, about three years ago I went to Madagascar and I, I was, I, we have a big research centre out there and I was really excited, I, I'd watched the, you know, many films about Madagascar and even the cartoon, my children watched the cartoon I thought, yes, fantastic, we'll see dancing lemurs. And I got off the plane, and the first thing I could smell was burning. And Madagascar as a country has been burning for 10 years. And the biodiversity, the rate of loss is massive. Now, we keep saying, you know, you must protect biodiversity. But I don't know if anyone in this room has been to Madagascar. But the level of poverty there, it's one of the countries in the world where poverty is getting worse, not better. And you see, these, you see abject poverty, people with five or six children, and the only way they can make an income is to sell charcoal. And so they burn the trees to make charcoal. And I think the two are very closely related because it's not so much about actually, you know, the biodiversity we have in the UK, which is not a lot, we discussed before, but also properly paying for the biodiversity and the services it provides in those most biodiverse areas in the world. And I think that's where we have to really change that dialogue if we want to conserve biodiversity, because the, the best biodiversity or the most important biodiversity are in parts of the world that are completely stricken with poverty. And it's, it is their only resource. And therefore, we have to also think about, can we put a value on that biodiversity? And can we get that money to people, for people to become custodians of the biodiversity that they live with? So in, in one reason why we're talking about the biodiversity is that we have a biodiversity convention from 92. Lots of biologists and people that love nature think that that convention is about protection 
and conserving. Actually, conservation do not exist in that uh, in in the mm. wording of it. It's actually a convention about. Uh, it's, it has three components. It has we should not cause other species to go extinct. So that's a moral ethical thing. The other thing is about uses. It's about sustainable use. Mm. So it's not protection. It's sustainable use. And the third thing is equal sharing of cost and benefit yeah. at a global scale. Those are the three things that goes in there. Yeah. But I'm, I'm thinking also about uh, <coughs> what, what positive uh, things are there in this, uh, in this case. Who, who, who can save us from, from uh, the extinction? Who are, who are the ones who uh, will change the, uh, the are we, situation? We're, we're, we're sitting room. here. <laughs> Humans. Humans yeah. are the cause. It is the way we act and the way we manage things. And right now it's not sustainable. And the only one that can change this is us. Yep. And this is why we have international talks, international agreements. This is why EU is pushing. This is an agenda that is being pushed enormously. And there will be, you know, just like we've seen the climate change being pushed at a global thing, this is the next big thing that will be pushed. Yep. Uh, because we can change it, and I remain fairly optimistic that if we are willing to do it and if we understand it, we can change it before it goes wrong. No, I, I was um, I was present at the Biodiversity Cup one in Bahamas in I think it was '94, mm-hmm. and and I remember one of the big discussions was uh, the private enterprises that yeah. they they wanted uh, not to pay for uh, biodiversity, but but that has changed. Now, I mean, if if we're looking at the big international companies in Denmark. Uh, they are talking about the United Nations sustainability targets, but the other things they're talking about trying to develop governance and other strategy for is biodiversity. So in many ways, we, the largest Danish companies is talking much more about this, about what to do it, than the public is. Uh, so I think actually a part of the solution is that that private sector will push this in, yeah. the, right, in the right direction. They are doing that because they think this will be important for most people. So it makes economic sense for various reasons, but it's also because they, they expect that we will, um, will put pressure on it and they're preparing for it, but they take it very, very seriously. So it, it's not necessarily the, the governments, but uh, no. also the, the private no. enterprises. I think private enterprises are so important because, in fact, when, in the UK anyway, 90% of the UK land is privately owned. So while you can have all the government policies about how to manage the land, you really do need to work with the people who are working that land and own the land and get them to understand the value of biodiversity to their business. Um, and it's, uh, recently I was at a meeting with um, Mars, you know the people who make Mars bars? So Mars Inc, they used to have, biodiversity was a separate thing where they paid money into and called it corporate social responsibility. And then they realized that actually all that was happening, they were giving money for projects that were failing. So the economists said, right, let's take these, the biodiversity and let's put it on our main spreadsheet and see how much biodiversity we're using in the production of a sachet of coffee or a chocolate bar. And what they found when they started to look at the input of biodiversity, first of all, they found it was really important, but they also found the biggest use tended to be in the processing and the packaging. And so when they looked at that, they reduced the amount of biodiversity they were using in that. They made a bigger profit, 
and they had a bigger impact on biodiversity than putting money separately into a corporate social responsibility fund. And so it was that joint bringing the biodiversity into the main part of their accounts that really starts to make the difference. And I think it's that approach. It's starting to see biodiversity is not as a luxury, but actually something that's absolutely essential to the business. And there are other examples, the clean uh, Vitel and um, Perrier. You know, they want clean water. They need clean water. We want to have lovely spring water. But that clean water from the French Alps requires the soils not to be eroded. So again, it's maintaining the trees on those slopes in order to make sure your water is pure. So who maintains those trees? Well, it has to be the landowner. So therefore, it goes back to this saying, let's reward or pay money to the person who is the custodian of that biodiversity that we all rely upon. I was thinking about also one of your uh, expert areas as a researcher is also the, um, the climate change yep. and, uh, and what's happening to the, to the environment yep. at the global level. And, and there, there's also uh, some global level um, change in the way uh, plants behave. Yeah, so plants, plants are flowering earlier. There's, that's, that's certainly, we're seeing a change in the flowering patterns. We're seeing novel assemblages, novel communities. Different things are growing alongside other things. We're seeing plants moving up mountains. We're seeing plants moving north into areas that didn't have plants before. But a really interesting one, as we're increasing the level of atmospheric carbon dioxide, plants are getting bigger. Tree trunks are getting thicker. And in, in savannah areas, you're finding there's a big increase, right away, right around the edge of Africa, an increase in woody biomass as a result of the increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide. So on one side, you could say it's not all bad news because actually you've got bigger plants, lusher, higher yields. But of course, that comes at a cost because we're also totally changing the whole ecosystem and they're draining more nutrients from the soil. So you will get to a point where the soils are no longer able to support the plants and that will be catastrophic. But, but we are, from the beginning, talking about the six uh, great uh, mass extinctions of species on Earth. What, what is the forecast, really? I mean, we are in a bad situation now, but, but uh, will it change? What, what is going, what's going to happen? I think that we see a lot of movement on the global level and at the EU level that is making decisions on this. Um, I sometimes get asked by Danish journalists uh, if I remain optimistic and I say yes, but I remain optimistic because of these global uh, talks. Uh, I, I do sense an understanding of the issues and the complexity mm. and also start seeing a willingness for, uh, for politicians to make decisions. One of the things I'm often being told by politicians is that one of the problems is that when they get back home, they need to communicate with the public. And if you're making a um, huge decision that will change things, you need to have the understanding and the support of your voters. And if the, the British are, are, you know, if the British thinks it's a washing <laughs> thing, then it's hard to get support to it. There was a survey in Denmark about how many Danes that... Um, knew about the word biodiversity, 
and it's uh, about 60%. That's the third lowest in Europe. So uh, Sweden and, and Germany is about 90%. Then they were really bold and asked the next question, do you have any idea about what it is? And for that, there was 20%. Now we don't know if they think it's a washing <laughs> thing, but at least 20% thought they had something. And that's actually one of the big issues that I, I see actually a lot of willingness at an international EU global scale to make decisions to do this, but there's still a way to go to understand the seriousness uh, in the public about it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that some people say is we should get rid of the word biodiversity altogether and just use the word nature. And on the surface, that, I think that's a good idea. You think, yeah, people immediately know what you talk about, nature. But there is, there is a, a sort of a, a but in here. And if you think about um, nature and its role in sequestering carbon, drawing it down, locking it up in the wood, you only have to go to Brazil to see miles and miles of monodominant eucalyptus forest. That is nature sequestering the carbon. Now, is that good? No, absolutely not. And, and so, therefore, nature is too broad a term. It's the diversity that we need, not just the single species. And I think that's the problem with the word nature. But if anyone has a better suggestion for another word to biodiversity, I think it would be all ears, actually. So, so I, I fully agree. Uh, in Denmark, um, we, uh, we used to talk about, uh, as we use a Danish term that's called environment. That's very broad. So when we do something good for climate, uh, we also thought we did something good for nature and biodiversity and everything. Then we learned to say nature, and then we are working with this. So, for example, uh, uh, I'm one of the persons that has done all the analysis about the necessity to do something with our forest, because basically our forests are dead. There's nothing in there. Just because they're green and we call them nature is not the same as they have biodiversity in there. So if I look at a cornfield or a Danish forest, they're basically equally dead in terms of having other organisms. Mm. Uh, so, so I think it is important to uh, understand the word biodiversity and what that means. And sometimes I, I used to debate a lot with Ida Auken about these things, and she was arguing that, that we needed to call it nature because that was easy to understand. And my point was that, well, the rest of the world is talking about something else, and we need to talk about the same thing as the rest of the world. And we did some township meetings in, in Albania, uh, Bolivia, Denmark, and China, and Vietnam, where we had the same material, where citizens in town, town hall meetings were talking. And I, was, I prepared the material and was watching it on live. And I said, that was impressive how much they understood and how much they made the discussion of this, except in Denmark. Because in Denmark, they ended up talking about hunting. Uh, so they kind of, you know, missed the entire point. And my, my point to Yidaoken was that I don't think that Danes are more stupid than other people. So yes, we can also learn to talk about these things in the way that the rest of the world is talking. I, I was... <laughs> I'll come back to you afterwards. But I was just thinking about uh, what Cassie said about the biobanks. Uh, what about in the animal world? Uh, how effective are biobanks, or do we call them zoos, and, and, and can they conserve anything substantial? Uh, 
That was what I pointed out. That was my first scientific paper to do an evaluation of that. No, they can't. But there is one route, and that is uh, that's gen genomic and genetic material. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of the value of biodiversity is in the genes and what they can do, uh, and that we can preserve. And this is where, just like Kathy uh, talks about the, the pres preservation of seed banks, that is what we are seeing. I come from the uh, Natural History Museum of Denmark, and we used to have, or we have a lot of collections of dead animals and plants and herbariums. What we are building up is huge genetic deposit and, yep. and materials. And those are going to be absolutely important for the future. Yep. And that's also true with plants as well. I mean, the seed bank is a very, very expensive way of keeping something going. So at the same time, we have a freezer, um, which has got the DNA in, and that one freezer is the most biodiverse area in the world in so, terms of its genetic diversity. <laughs> but, but I can give you an example. Um, we, we have uh, done the entire uh, mapping of the genes in, in, in most of the larger uh, groups of birds, including chicken. There's 10,000 genes. What happens when we had a mass extinction, actually happens before the mass extinction, uh, there was a lot of mutation in birds, and basically mm. the immune defense broke down. And they were really uh, not very good at killing off diseases, and birds was actually going down. Then we have the mass extinction, and suddenly there was a free mm. world where they were adapted to flying around, and that benefited them. But basically, uh, all bird lineages still have no immune system. One of the very old lineages of birds is chicken. We're taking the red wildfowl. It has no immune system. For some stupid reason, no, for some reason, we have uh, picked the red uh, uh, jungle fowl and made that a chicken. Why are we doing that? Because it grows fast and lays a lot of eggs. Yeah. That is just to survive because it cannot survive diseases. Yeah. So right now we have spread it all over the world. We're depending on it for food, but it has no immune defense. So we heard about avian flu and all those things. Everything, all diseases will jump on chicken. Now, there's lots of different chicken species out there. Lot, yeah. There is a very high possibility that some of the other jungle fowls out there has an immune system because we know that it's only the very oldest one that hasn't figured out to have an immune system. So most of the rest of the bird has an immune system. So that's, you know, yeah. a good reason for preserved biodiversity. You, you mentioned... Uh, genetics uh, sequencing. I, I, was, I was wondering, will we be able to sequence these uh, animals or species and then conserve them as, as uh, electronic sequences so we can uh, regenerate them again at, at a later time? Uh, you talk about regenerating genes or species? I'm, I'm talking about uh, the step. Uh, so, so if you talk from, about genes, yeah. I'll say, yes, we have all the technology to do that. No problem. It's just a matter of cost. And the cost is going down and down yeah. and down and down. For us to do a sequence of an organism where we map out all the, for, for mammals or birds, for map out 11,000 genes or 20,000 genes, takes about $2,000. That's what we can cost when we are operating in big machines. Uh, and we, it's easy to preserve. Uh, it is more costly for plants. They're much more compli complicated. They have huge genomes. That's some of them, that if you take out the, the um, genetic material in a single cell and spread it out, it would go to 30 meters in length. I mean, they're ex extraordinary, some of these plants. Um, so it's a problem. 
<laughs> no, but I was also thinking uh, when you have these sequences and you have all this uh, information, can you uh, then create this uh, extinct animal afterwards? No. And I, I think we're far away from, from doing that. Uh, that's because there's other things in genes there's that, that it, it's enormously complex. Mm. Uh, so if I, I'm not an expert in that, but if I talk to my colleagues, Tom Gilbert or Eske Villaslew that is working with this, they'll say, no way in hell. Mm. It's not going to happen. Uh, but I think that what we can do is the genes. Yeah. And, and that's actually where a lot of the value lies. And that is very, very easy. We have this technology. We can do it. Uh, we, we, we just involved in a, in a major collaboration uh, also with some of, of Kathy's people, and that is to make some basic sequences of all the tree species in the Amazon. And it's about 16,000 uh, species. Uh, and why is that interested? That's interesting. If we look at the chemical components that goes into uh, the drugs that is used for chemotherapy for cancer, then 75% of all those drugs has uh, uh, components that comes from tree species in the Amazon but we only mapped out about half of them. And this is also why there's you know, an, a huge interest for, 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 for medical industry, but this is again coming into the equal sharing of benefits for Absolutely. biodiversity in Brazil, uh, where we're doing this. But we can do the genes, and, and this is where research is moving very, very rapidly because it has enormous potential and benefit. Time is running very fast. We have 40 seconds left. One last question. Are you optimistic about the state of biodiversity in the future? Yes, I think I am. I think we are now asking the right questions and we're, we're getting the right bodies behind the questions they're asking. And I do think the big businesses are joining in with this discussion. And given that most of the biodiversity loss is driven by land use change, that's where we need to be. So I am optimistic. And, and you, Kirsten? I, I remain positive, but on condition that uh, we, the public gets behind it. Yeah. And the public only gets behind it if we start understanding it. Thank you very much, and a big hand to our two speakers. Du har lyttet til en Heartland podcast. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så husk at give et review ind på iTunes, eller prik din ven på skulderen og sig, at du hørte det her. Tak fordi du lyttede med. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.